Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, October 28th, and this is episode two, uh, 3,193 of the Survival Podcast. It is, of course, Friday, Friday, Friday. So time for an expert council Q&A show of the week to end off the week. And uh, I will tell you, uh, once again, I am recording this on Thursday and giving myself a week off, a day off every week without actually missing a podcast. This is beginning to work well. I think I've got a good rhythm down. It does involve an awful lot more work on a Thursday, but it's worth it for a three-day weekend. Why do I tell you that? One, so if some kind of crazy crap happened on Friday, and I'm not talking about it, you know why, because I couldn't, it's already done. But two, I, I want to encourage more of this thinking in my audience. How can you take time back? How can you condense a work week somehow and maybe give yourself three-day weekends, even if not every week? What about every other week? You know, I used to do this in a J-O-B. I used to work for Lockheed Martin as a contractor. And it wasn't just me. It was everybody that worked at the facility. Here's how it worked out. They worked nine-hour days, Monday through Thursday, then they worked an eight-hour day on Friday. They didn't get the four hours of overtime. They carried the four hours into the next week. They got you know, 40 and 40 across two weeks and just took every other Friday off. I'm going to tell you something about that place. People enjoyed working there. I, I actually worked really hard on trying to move from contractor to employee and some other opportunities came up and I, I, I quit. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did, because if I would have got in there, I might still be there, and there might be no survival podcast. Who knows? Um, but they were happy to have every other Friday off. Can you figure out how to make this happen? What kind of jiu-jitsu, mental jiu-jitsu, we talk about state issues, what kind of mental jiu-jitsu, if you're not going to be an entrepreneur, can you use on your employer? We're going to actually hit that in my subject, today, or my, uh, my anchor segment today, a little bit in a different way. All right, so what do we got for you this week? Ron Paul's Liberty Highlights. We got the big black, the big black rock bubble will burst from Dr. Paul. Don, uh, Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul team up on the fact that the military personnel are now blowing the whistle on abusive vaccine mandates. Chris Rossini will talk about how woke capitalism and climate finance are hitting a wall with normal freaking people. This kind of lines up with some of the stuff I talked about yesterday for you guys. Jeff Lawton will talk about seaweed as a compostable and as a fertility aid. I have a little add-on with that, with something I do on the rare occasions I manage to get my ass down to the coast to uh, to, to fish anymore. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry will talk about the keto diet and people with kidney disease and why your doctor who tells you if you have kidney problems, you should eat a low-protein, high-gruel diet. It's probably wrong and likely to, in the long run, make your problem worse and maybe even kill you. I'm not kidding. Doc Bones will talk about what the hell's going on with fentanyl. And I'm going to give you a little bit of tin hat conspiracy theory about all this fentanyl shit. And I think it's possible or maybe partially probable. Anyway, Sean Mills will talk about the right certifications for becoming a solar designer and installer, specifically helping people that want to be fully off-grid and doing that professionally. Amy Dingman will follow up on a, a, a segment she did a couple episodes ago 
where she talked about opening the world to your kids with homeschooling versus making it smaller. And so that prompted somebody to ask, what are some examples of ways to do just that? Nick Ferguson will talk about minimizing your feed inputs for rabbits in a small suburban lot. And I'll talk about, I'm going to call it this, thoughts on domestic migration arbitrage and getting the F out of the city. And this is actually, though, coming from a question from someone that lives in a little place called Breckenridge, Texas. So that's not how he phrased it, but that's sort of kind of leaning you toward my answer. And it kind of like goes back to this whole, how can you give yourself more time freedom without sacrificing your income? Many of you are starting to put that together already. With that, let's go ahead and jump into it today. Dr. Paul Damick Adams and Chris Rossini on the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. It is my belief and evidence is available for people who have uh, studied this that the uh, that BlackRock is a close friend of the Fed and that they have responsibility when the money has to be passed out. What better company can you ask that's involved with uh, $10 trillion worth of corporate uh, securities to manipulate and put pressure? And the other thing that they do is they work behind the scenes at getting the directors uh, thrown out if they happen to disagree with this policy of investing, not because of good investment, but because of this uh, radical wokeism. What I see is the bubble keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it, when it bursts, it might it might astound people how how big it really is. But uh, I want to read uh, a comment that Fink made in his letter uh, as CEO, his letter uh, uh, this year, 2022. He said that. Uh, Capitalism has the power to shape society and act as a powerful catalyst to change. And when we harness, now this is the catchphrase, and when we harness the power of both the public and private sectors, we can achieve incredible things. This is what we must do to get to zero. Zero means there's going to be no, no more CO2. What are we going to do with all this CO2 that we breathe out every single day? We, they've already admitted they want to kill all the cows, uh, but, but they want to get to zero. So, uh, but this is this, this harnessing of the public and the private. That, that's the giveaway. This is corporatism at its worst. It's, uh, it lends itself to fascism and socialist ideas, but eventually it will end just as the big bubble will end because this is not durable. But, you know, here's another bit of good news on this, and that's that the, probably some of the most <clears throat> oppressed people in the country, uh, and people will say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Because they're treated as slaves by the very same people who say they should be honored, and that's the men and women of the U.S. military. Now, they're starting to stand up to the tyranny. Let's put this next one. This is from the Epoch Times. Um, military whistleblowers sound alarm on, quote, devastating consequences of the Pentagon's vaccine mandate. You know, this, no, this is frowned upon. They held a press conference uh, about a week or so ago uh, talking about what has happened to them, uh, what this vax mandate has done to the military, to military personnel, and they've gotten tens of thousands of views to this. People are starting to realize what these thugs 
have done to the military, the same people they claim to worship, you know, I think it's a good start to see these, these poor guys and gals stand up. What the, what the real irony here is, it's, it's the military, and the military has always had a special place, uh, because they're going to defend us against communism and all these things. But, it, but that's lost its way too, because now the military is just a result of a powerful lobbying, uh, unit called the military industrial complex yeah. that can get anything they want and as much money as that they want, but they always have to have a justification. You have to know why we go into the Middle East, why we go to Syria, why we go to Afghanistan. It's a bad policy. Military is okay, but military should be there to defend our country, not to go out and precipitate war and look for a monster to kill so the military industrial complex makes their profits. I mean, I think that's no secret why you had the highest percentage of support or highest number of support from actual military personnel. Not the military industrial complex. I don't think they gave you too much money in your campaign. But officers, enlisted men and women did because they understand what it means to actually value the military. Now you got it, Dr. Paul. It's a, the CSG is it's a mixture of the woke political agenda mixed with climate finance. And it's all geared towards this net zero, this absurdity of getting rid of fossil fuels. But, you know, people do absurd things. That's part of life. And you have these companies that are now rated with ESG scores, you know, and it, this score, this social credit score, uh, shows how woke they are and how green they are. You know, and you, have you noticed, you know, you're seeing more and more products, they tell you how, how much recycled material is in it. All right, whatever. I don't buy things based on that or not buy things based on that. It's, you know, information. It's like telling me that, you know, half the people that made the product were over five foot tall. All right, whatever. How much is it? So, you know, it's they try to uh, virtue signal, basically. Now, why would companies do this? Obviously, normally, they would not do this nonsense. Well, there's the financial side, and Dr. Paul mentioned BlackRock, and you have Vanguard. And these, they manage trillions of dollars. If you look at the top shareholders in the S&P 500, I think 90% the top shareholders are BlackRock mm. and S&P, or uh, not S&P, uh, Vanguard. So they have a financial leash on these companies. Uh, that's why you have these corporations all walking together doing all these crazy things. And people are wondering, how is this possible that all these corporations are doing this? This is how it's possible. So, as Dr. Paul pointed out, states are finally pushing back. The people have had enough, and this is all very good news, uh, you know, and we're, we're happy to report on it. So, I, I think on the BlackRock thing, something that people are not saying directly that's really important to understand and how big this bubble is and how much control they've exerted through ESG and why so many companies are ESG, and specifically companies that are publicly traded. BlackRock manages so much money, they have incredible leverage, and they are literally telling public companies, if you don't do ESG, we will not buy your stock and put it into the various different funds that we manage. This is a massive block of money that is going to all the other companies that are playing ball. So these companies will get on board with ESG, even if they don't agree with it, just because they can't afford to not be in the game in the way that our system works. 
You're either growing or dying in our system of economics. That's how it works. That's how the game is set up. The game is rigged that way. And BlackRock, as Ron, Ron Paul there explained, has this massive faucet, the, the Cantillon effect again, of being close to the money and get the money for nothing and the chicks for free and the stock for nothing. Right, so they're not only just using the money that they have from their clientele, they're also using financed money to buy holdings for themselves. What this means is you make the deal, do the thing, and we'll buy the stock, but you're not buying the stock because of the value of the stock, you're buying the stock because of obedience. Eventually, da 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 the music stops, and in this game of musical chairs, there's not, you know, a hundred people in 99 chairs, there's a thousand people in 50 chairs, and there's going to be a lot of people without a chair when the music stops. It's like a game of musical chairs mixed with hot potato. Not only do you not get a chair, somebody drops a hot potato in your hands, and there's no place to get rid of it at. This is, this is, this is the merry-go-round, nightmare merry-go-round that I talked a little bit about yesterday that we're on right now. And it's not going to get any better anytime soon. Now, on top of this, as, as, as Chris mentioned, we are seeing people finally go, you know what? I've had enough. I've had enough of all. And, and like I said yesterday, the Democrats are going to lose badly in the election. And even though it doesn't mean as much as some people think it means in your real world, they deserve to lose. They deserve to be punished for their stupidity. So you're going to have these two worlds collide Then you have the housing problems. Then you have the, the supply chain shortages. Then you have runaway inflation. And, and we are in for a world of hurt. I hope you've been listening for 14 and a half years now. And you've been preparing and building resiliency into your life. Because you're about to need it. And while it will be worse in Europe, take no solace in that as an American. Because just because somebody's worse doesn't mean you're okay. There's tons of opportunity here still. Take it and do something with it, because you're going to need to. On that, what if you don't live on the coast, but you live near the coast, and you hear all this stuff about seaweed and it being good for uh, plants? Might it make sense to bring some seaweed from the coast to your land to help your stuff grow better? If so, how would you do it? How should you do it? I know a guy that knows stuff like this. His name is Jeff Lott. Jeff, what say you, bro? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from South Africa, um, where I'm working, teaching permaculture courses. I have an inquiry here coming from Southwest Oregon. Uh, someone's about an hour inland, they have 24 acres, and they've more or less had an organic property with no synthetic chemicals for 150 years, just cattle manure on site, and that's it. So, they're pretty lucky. Um, they want to know what I think about seaweed. Um, they compost everything, and they want to know if they can bring seaweed in um, and other ocean debris. Well, seaweed's fantastic. Kelp, it particularly, uh, contains all the ocean's minerals. You can dry it and chip it. You get it brittle, dry, and chip it, and um, it can mix in with the compost very well. Be careful if you bring it in slimy and lay it down as mulch, because if it gets too thick, It becomes a gel factor. Uh, it, it, it really is like impenetrable from water because it just clugs together and makes a thick gel. If you dry it, like washing on a line, and then chip it and break it up, uh, it, increasing its surface area, it, it's great 
in the mulch with other mulches and it's also fantastic in the compost um, you can bring in other ocean debris um, most of what comes out of the ocean like fish wastes and any other living things are usually high in, in phosphates but you can also bring in shells and crush them up and you get extra calcium so I think all those things are uh, wonderful additions um, and uh, often uh, long term um, as in they can be releasing uh, very slowly to the soil over many years and uh, I wouldn't hesitate to include them in your compost and additions to your soil amendments sounds good sounds like you've got a beautiful place so I just in the last couple of years haven't got away as much to go down to the Texas coast and surf fish like I used to but when I do I always uh, I usually fish near a place called Surfside And the beach is pretty well groomed there. It makes it nice for fishing. But just a few miles north of there, as you head toward Galveston, there's like 15 miles of beach that you can totally drive anywhere you want to on, except that they don't groom the beach, and it is always loaded with seaweed. And it's a lot less of the kelp-type seaweed, because this is the Gulf of Mexico versus the Pacific Northwest. And it's a lot more of uh it's kind of a... Uh, uh, it's not a grass. It's more like a, uh, a spiral-like weed, something along uh, the lines of like coontail or something like that. I'm not sure what species of seaweed is, but the nice thing about it is you can like just throw a buttload of it in the back of a pickup truck, and you want to tarp it or something because it will blow all over the highway on your way home if you don't. But when you get it back, you can just kind of throw it in a pile and let it begin to dry up, which will happen really, really quickly. And because it's not a flat, big leaf like Jeff's talking about, it doesn't tend to uh, to stick together. So you can dry it, or you can go straight into composting with it. And it's a pretty cool addition, and the places that we've used it have had pretty amazing results. So I would say if there's ever a opportunity to acquire um, organic matter that you know what you're getting that it probably makes sense to completely use to use it and diversify your composting your mulching etc here's a caution i think it makes a lot of sense to use aquatic weeds even out of freshwater systems i think they're an incredibly awesome uh mulching and uh composting aid i use it all the time here growing my own this does include things like farm ponds and stuff like that or you know ponds and apartment complexes except How much of the icky get crap that they spray on the grass is washing into those ponds? And the answer is if they're doing it, like all of it. Because you're spraying lawn that is all in the catchment. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So just think about that if you're acquiring something like what might also be there. I'm not as paranoid about it as, let's say, Paul Wheaton is, but it is something that I put thought into. Next up, let's hear about kidney disease and the standard medical advice that you need to have a low-protein diet. Is that stupid? It is. Here's why. Hey, Jack Spearco and all the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question today about focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I got a question from a listener of Jack's. My 28-year-old daughter was uh, diagnosed with SF, SF, FSGS, uh, and I, which stands for the, the mouthful I'd said previously, about four years ago. She struggles with her weight, but she is not visibly overly obese. Her kidneys are producing a high amount of protein, so her doctor put her on a low-protein diet. And this is a common ignorant thing that many doctors misunderstand. 
and therefore give their patients very bad advice for. So uh, FSGS is like many other kidney issues, and that's why I think it's important to answer this question. So if any of you guys have polycystic kidney disease, if you have chronic kidney disease of any kind, you have to understand that the, the vast bulk of uh, renal research, research about kidney health, shows very clearly that the most damaging and most dangerous macronutrient for kidney damage is sugar, is carbohydrates, all of which break down ultimately into sugar. And so uh, your 28-year-old daughter who is uh, now pregnant with twins, oh, congratulations, uh, she's very high risk and she now has developed gestational diabetes. So she can absolutely reverse her gestational diabetes and protect her remaining kidney function for the rest of her life by adopting a very low carbohydrate, nutritionally dense, ancestrally appropriate, proper human diet. And I've got lots of videos on my YouTube channel about this type of dietary way of eating. Uh, and so here's the thing that doctors misunderstand. They see, oh, you're, you're excreting protein in your urine. Oh gosh. Therefore you should, you must eat a lower protein diet. So here's the truth of that. The kidney damage allows protein to leak out into the urine. So the kidneys are typically, if they're in good health, they're excellent uh, retainers of protein because protein is a very energy intense molecule for your body to create. That's why we want to eat high quality protein and that's why your kidneys save protein. And so when, when, when protein winds up at the kidneys, they're like, no, don't excrete that in the way. Save that because that's a very valuable molecule. But if you have some degree of kidney damage, then your kidneys are less good at retaining this protein and some protein will start to leak out into your urine. And indeed, this is one of the very first signs of chronic kidney disease or polycystic kidney disease or FSGS or any other kidney problem is that the kidneys as a filter, when they're damaged, they start to leak protein. But many doctors have forgotten all of their physiology training that they received the first two years of medical school. And they're just like, oh, protein in urine. Oh, therefore, must eat less protein in diet. And this is fucking stupid. OK, this this is ignorant. Uh, any doctor who says this has forgotten all the basic principles of human biochemistry and physiology. You want to stop eating the thing that damaged the kidneys to start with. And that's a high carbohydrate, highly processed, inflammatory, standard American diet. And so if your daughter would like to reverse her gestational diabetes quickly and protect her remaining kidney function for the rest of her life, she needs to eat a proper human diet, which is very, very low in carbohydrates is full of fatty animal meat and eggs with the yolk. Hope this video helps. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time. I agree, and I also want to hit on something that's the larger problem here, and that is um, healthcare worker-induced psychosis, maybe is the word for it, or induced, uh, I don't know the word. When you When you vehemently believe a thing, that is not true because of the source of the thing that you are supposed to believe and you are incapable of pulling your head from what we referred to in the military as your fourth point of contact so that you can see the truth rather than up your own ass. 
And I have seen this over and over and over again with, with friends that are healthcare workers. And you'll have these discussions about diabetes, kidney, whatever. And when you tell them, I'm sorry, that's not true, you cannot get to the point of explaining why they're wrong before they cut you off. Well, I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. I work in an ER. Like, I don't give a shit. The fact that you have a credential and somebody told you a thing and programmed it into your brain does not change like the laws of biology and chemistry. Well, I know the laws of biology and chemistry. I've studied them. Then why don't you use them? And this is another version of Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Remember, in Bonhoeffer's theory, stupid doesn't mean intellectually slow. And in fact, the most dangerous thing is a group of intellectually intelligent people who are wrong but can't see that they're wrong and use the clout of their title to push a narrative that is incorrect. This, I have just summed up, that health and nutrition, pharmaceutical and medical industries in the United States, and a bunch of other ones too. But that's where we're at. We have doctors literally giving advice to people that is killing their patients. Not because they are murderous bastards, but because they have been made stupid by their own system of education, their own system of indoctrination, and they are unwilling to consider the fact that they are wrong. If you are a doctor and you tell type 2 diabetic patients of yours that it is okay for them to eat things like whole grain pancakes okay, and banana whole grain pancakes, then you're killing your patients. Well, doctors don't do that. Yes, they do. In fact, the American Diabetes Association recently put out a recipe to make whole grain banana pancakes for diabetics. And this is bizarro land. This is Superman with the backwards S. Some of you are old enough to know what the hell I'm talking about, right? The backwards bizarro World Justice League. This is where we are. And it is another manifestation of Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. And this is the thing you have to do. You have to individually break free from it because the collective's not ready yet. You have to be willing to listen to alternative voices. And I, I've got to tell you guys, I'm going to hold it till Monday. I've got a gentleman named Christopher who has been on this journey for the past like six, eight weeks, who has taken my challenge. This guy was in pretty good shape already of let's go. Let's try what Ken teaches and see what happens. What do you hear as results? But I'll hold that till Monday. Next up, let's now hear about fentanyl from the other doctor in our expert panel, Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded Amazon Top 20, fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. The Drug Enforcement Administration has sent out an advisory to the public regarding the opioid crisis, specifically warning of the presence of brightly colored fentanyl pills in general circulation. The presence of highly addictive rainbow fentanyl is indeed a trend which potentially targets young people and even children. I've known of fentanyl my entire medical career. My professional experience with it involved use during general anesthesia on patients undergoing surgery and epidurals during labor. It's also been used in combat casualties, cancer patients, and others in the form of lollipops for pain relief and sedation. First synthesized in 1960, it gained approval for medical use in 1968 and gained widespread acceptance. By 2017, fentanyl was the most frequently used synthetic opioid in medicine. Two years later, more than one million prescriptions for it were being written annually. 
In 2021, two years after that, fentanyl accounted for more than 71,000 opioid overdose deaths in the United States. In the coming year, I expect more than 100,000. The vast majority of recent cases are linked to illicitly manufactured fentanyl originating, it's thought, in Mexico or possibly even China. The Department of Justice reports a seizure of more than 10.2 million fentanyl pills and approximately 980 pounds of fentanyl powder in the period from May 23rd through September 8th of just this year. Why fentanyl? For a drug dealer, fentanyl has some attributes that compare it favorably to heroin. Fentanyl is more potent. It has a higher profit margin. It's easier to transport to the market in the form of pills, lozenges, injections, nasal sprays, eye drops, and even skin patches. It's been given unthreatening nicknames such as Dance Fever, Goodfellas, and Jackpot. As it's relatively cheap, it can be used to mix in with more expensive illegal drugs. For the consumer, fentanyl acts like other opioids, but on steroids. Once in the body, it attaches itself to nerve receptors that control pain response and emotions. The drug provides strong pain relief and creates an intense euphoric high. It does this by elevating levels of the chemical dopamine. The drug also takes effect faster than either morphine or heroin. The duration of effect that depends on the dosage taken, the method of intake, and other factors. In those who inject the drug, the half-life lasts about 11 hours or so, but, of course, the high occurs much faster. As the body breaks down the drug, it leaves traces behind called metabolites. Metabolites remain longer than the direction of fentanyl effects. As such, they may be detected in drug tests much longer than the high lasts. Unfortunately, there are serious risks associated with the use of fentanyl. You can expect sedation, confusion, drowsiness, dizziness, nausea and vomiting, urinary retention, pupillary constriction, and respiratory depression. This highly addictive substance leads to serious physical dependence in addition to tolerance. That's the need for higher doses over time to get the same high. Additional dangers relate to the tendency for fentanyl powder to be mixed in with heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. As it can't be identified by sight, taste, or smell, it would require a lab analysis or special test strips to identify. The practice of cutting drugs with fentanyl causes the user to inadvertently be given a dose much stronger than ordinarily expected from, say, heroin. Indeed, accidental exposure of fentanyl to skin can be lethal in doses as low as 0.25 milligrams. Recognizing the signs of opioid overdose can save a life. Here are some things to look for. Sleepiness or loss of consciousness. Slow or no breathing. Drops in blood pressure. Choking. Small constricted pupils. Changes in muscle tone. Cold, clammy, blue-gray lips and fingertips, also known as cyanosis. In addition to the above, signs and symptoms more specific to fentanyl may include foaming at the mouth, body stiffening, seizures, and confusion before becoming unresponsive. Treating fentanyl and other opioid overdoses involves administering a drug called naloxone, brand name Narcan. It's available as an injectable solution or a nasal spray. Although normally a prescription med, some states have passed laws allowing pharmacists to dispense the drug without a prescription. Victims of opioid overdoses who are given naloxone should be monitored for another two hours after the last dose to assure good breathing and oxygenation. You might have to give more doses. Pulse oximeter is a useful item to determine oxygen saturation in the body. Of course, in normal times, 911 should be called and emergency medical personnel should be dispatched ASAP. It should be noted that naloxone has no major ill effects if given to a person who doesn't have opioids in their system. Even if you're not certain that a person has overdosed on opioids, you should still give them the drug. Indeed, the worst side effect is that they may begin to experience withdrawal. Withdrawal symptoms from fentanyl include depression, anxiety, irritability, agitation, insomnia, and even flu-like symptoms. 
Record seizures of rainbow fentanyl have amounted to doses that would be fatal to millions. Given that these discoveries are just a fraction of the total that crosses the border, the risk is significant enough that everyone should be aware of this dangerous drug. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do you know that our brand new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook covers almost every issue faced by the family, medic, and off-grid survival settings? Check it out at store.doomandbloom.net. And fill those holes in your medical supplies with quality kits and individual items for our entire store line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I'm not going to go full-on tin hat conspiracy theory here, but I'm going to just point some things out that are true, and then you take with it from it what you may about how much or how little our government might actually be, one, using this crisis to their own advantage, two, at least partially responsible for this crisis and not just due to incompetence. So the first thing I'll point out is that The United States government making sure that uh, certain substances harm their citizens uh, because they don't want their citizens engaged in that activity or want to create hysteria around it is not new. In uh, the, the era of prohibition, the United States government did in fact uh, taint illicit liquor with methanol, which meant they had the liquor, they could have simply seized it and taken it off the streets. However, they added methanol to it and put it back into circulation, and it killed people so that they would be afraid and not use the quote-unquote illicit liquor. In the 1980s, if you're my age, you may remember people coming into the classroom to tell you not to do drugs because it would make your head fry like your your brain fry like an egg, etc. And you may remember them telling you while the marijuana would not kill you with an overdose, you could get marijuana that had accidentally been sprayed with herbicides in the drug enforcement agency's attempt to control the drugs and the drug dealers didn't care about you, so they would sell it to you anyway and you could die from smoking pot, but only because it had been tainted by the government and they freely admitted it. So I don't have to go all the way back to the 1920s to point out that the government will, in fact, in intentionally put a toxin into a substance and doesn't care if you die, I can go back to the 1980s, which is not that long ago. So we have a history of this. On top of this, I will add, what happened between the period of time between about 2010-2012 and 2022 in regards to the United States' activity abroad? The Afghanistan war winded down. The Taliban took more and more control and fully took control after Brandon ran away. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have left. I think we should have left a long time ago. But you know what the Taliban doesn't like? Drugs. So our soldiers spent the better part of their time in Afghanistan doing shit like guarding poppy fields. If you think that's conspiracy theory, I'm sorry. I've got pictures, I've got video, and I've got dozens and dozens and dozens of emails from actual soldiers that said, yes, I guarded the poppy fields. I'm thinking the amount of uh, natural opium out of Afghanistan, which was the largest producer thereof, is probably kind of dried up. Hmm, that's interesting. Additionally, they've made it almost impossible for people that are addicted to opiate uh, pain medications to obtain them legitimately, pushing them into the streets. Now, here's all this funny-looking, pretty-colored pills and... They're targeting your children. Hmm, where have we heard this before? I believe that jazz musicians in the 1930s were going to make white women smoke pot and turn them bad. Things like that. Yeah. I remember being a kid and they were going to put you know, drugs in my candy when I was a kid. Never happened. 
All this bullshit, all these scare tactics, I do not think the fentanyl dealers are trying to trick your children into eating a bag of fentanyl. All the free drugs that I was told I was going to get in high school, I want reparations for the drugs I never got. Yes, I want reparations. I was promised when I was like in middle school and shit like that, that my whole life, but especially while I was in high school and college age and that, you know, teenage and early 20s, there would be people everywhere going, hey man, you want some drugs? I never got any free. I mean, once in a while at a party, you might have got a joint pastor. I want reparations. I want all those. Where are they? This is the same old tired story. Now, I don't mean to belittle the danger. I think the danger is real. I think the danger was real in the mid-80s when the United States government was spraying coxin on, 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 on marijuana fields, pot fields, cannabis fields, call them what you want, that they clearly knew where they were, and if they really just wanted to get rid of it, they just could have. I think the danger was real when the United States government was dumping methanol into you know illicit liquor, even though they could have simply seized it or gotten rid of it. And I think the danger is real now. And I don't know how much our government is involved. Is involved. I don't claim to have all the answers. But I guarantee you they are involved. They are involved. If, if you really think the whole goal here is to put a whole bunch of fentanyl into a box of Captain Crunch and kill your kids, you're probably still hiding from the ISIS person that was in your closet in 2012. We have to start thinking at a higher level. Because our government is doing everything they can to make sure that we don't. And pretty much, I am at a point in my life where unless it's something like look both ways before you cross the street and don't take candy from strangers, pretty much if the government says not to do something, that's what I'm going to do. And if the government says to do something, then that's what I'm not going to do. Anyway, let's move on from there and hear from Sean Mills on certification for solar installation and design. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and today I've got an expert counsel question from Noah. Uh, Noah says, what certifications, if any, should one pursue if they want to design solar systems? Sean, I have been increasingly interested in starting a side hustle, designing solar systems, mainly for those who want to go off-grid but want to do most of the installation work. Many of the companies I see out there want to design and install systems for normal residential homes at very high prices. I want to help those who want to go off-grid and or are comfortable installing most of the equipment themselves, design their solar systems. Uh, I think this would be a great opportunity to fill a niche and build a business, filling the gap between the 100% DIY and the turnkey solutions. I'd help a customer find what kind of system would work for their needs, design the system, and help them get the materials they need to construct the system. What certification, if any, should I pursue for this type of business? I have seen the NABCEP certification and wondering if that, if that as a route you would recommend. I think he meant is. Uh, as a background, I am an electrical engineer professionally, so the work here is up my alley. Thank you, Noah. Well, Noah, uh, there's definitely a demand for this type of service. Uh, this is what the vast majority of my consulting work is. I explain to people, if you want a grid-tied system, I can design it for you, but I'm not going to go learn all of the multiple thousands of different uh, local power company and grid operators' uh, regulations are. So I can design for you a system that works, but I'm not going to go so far as to say you can turn this into um, your utility and go ahead and install the system yourself. 
Um, but I have helped some people that are going to do grid, grid tied systems take care of, uh, their designs. But yeah, this is, this is essentially, um, what, what I'm doing in terms of design. It's primarily for the DIY off grid people or the people who want someone in their corner, even if they're going to hire a contractor, they want someone knowledgeable to help them understand what the process is and to arm them with a little bit of knowledge so that they don't uh, get taken advantage of. So my process, uh, and, and by the way, with, as an electrical engineer, then you definitely have the base knowledge needed. Um, you just have to understand, you know, definitely how the system components are going to function together to create a holistic design for your customer. So my process is I start with the demand profile by understanding what devices the customer is going to run on the system. So we always start with what's going to be plugged in. Uh, then you can make an educated guess on how many hours per day the device will be used, and you can run multiple demand profiles based on your own advice. So, for example, I tell people with an electric clothes dryer to only run it off of a generator and try to utilize the battery bank, um, you know, for the other smaller loads. Then you can pull double duty by drying your clothes and topping your battery banks off or running an equalization uh, charge while the generator is on. Uh, so once you have that daily kilowatt hour number, and I normally run both a winter and a summer uh, load profile, you need to know how many days of storage they want. Uh, with the new advances in lithium iron phosphate technology, I normally design for one day using no more than about 70% of the battery capacity. So now that you've got the kilowatt hour rating for the battery bank, you can design the PV array around the charging needs. Uh, the result of this will um, change if they are tilting or following the sun with any sort of tracking devices. Um, but, you know, those are your ma major components there, the array and the battery bank. So at this point, the system design becomes a little bit of science and a little bit of art as you've got to play with different charge controllers, inverters, or all-in-one devices to determine how to get the energy from the array to the batteries to the devices. You want to pay close attention to the max amperage and voltage on the devices themselves, um, which will tell you how to construct the arrays in different series and parallel configurations for maximum efficiency. I always derate the panels to 80% of nameplate for my designs. This allows the system to generate reliably for the duration of its life instead of just for the first two to four years. You know, you want your system to be managing at a 15 to 20 year down the road and not to be tapped out from UV degradation or dust buildup after three years. Personally, I don't find the NABCEP certifications to be necessary, but they do help some people feel comfortable that you know what you're talking about. Um, NCCER is another option. They have a solar design um, professional uh, qualification. There are some prerequisites there. You need to have uh, electrical one through four and core in order to get um, into the NCCER solar. So, you know, the problem with NABCEP is that you have to do the work. Like you already have to be part of systems that are installed to qualify for their associate level. And, you know, if you're doing off-grid systems, it's kind of hard to prove that, uh, you know, they're, they're really tailored to grid-tied systems. Uh, so if you're doing primarily off-grid designs, um, it, it becomes a little tough to, to kind of get in the door with them. Being an electrical engineer, you might be able to qualify for some sort of waiver there. So uh, sounds like you've got the base knowledge to do the work. There's definitely a demand there. Uh, my advice to you would be really upfront. Um, you know, talk to the people about what their goals are for the system. 
I find that I spend the majority of my time consulting, talking people out of going solar. And it's just part of the process. They've got some grand ideas, but, uh, you know, their grand ideas require six uh, figure budgets and that's not what they're looking for. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, uh, a demand here and, and I don't think the NABCEP certification is necessary. Um, I think that you just need to understand how these systems go together, how they work, uh, and then put together systems that, you know, you can help the people do the DIY to, to get them in place. So with that, uh, if you guys have any other questions, uh, send me a note or send it to Jack and he'll get it over to me. And, uh, Noah, if you've got any follow-up questions, send them in. Uh, cause like I said, it, this is part of the business that I do, but there's a significant amount of demand for it. And I think it's just going to grow. So, uh, I think we can work together instead of being competitors. All right. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. I'll just say that I always talk about opportunities that are coming because of the flux that we're in. I think this type of approach to solar, off-grid, etc. is one of the greatest growth opportunities uh, that exists. And I, I, I think, though, that you should be a little bit careful with being too typecast, uh, the original question, not really Sean's answer, with you know the whole uh, in-the-wilderness, off-grid type. Like, yeah, you should be able to do that, but you should be able to help anybody that wants to improve or, let's say, instead reduce their reliance on the grid. And so fully off-grid, sure, but that doesn't necessarily have to be too much of a typecast. What you want to be able to do is look at any situation, look at any budget, and do the best for the customer you can and market the hell out of that. My thoughts. Let's move on with how exactly do we expand the world and make it bigger for our kids if we've chosen homeschooling with Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life. Hey, TSB, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmer's Kind of Life podcast, and I'm back again. You sent in some questions about homeschooling, and this week I'm answering a question from Zach. Zach asked, what are some practical tips on expanding your homeschool students' world? Recently, you answered an expert question on expanding your homeschoolers' experience. Music instruments were an example for your kids. What are some other tips to try? Looking for inspiration as the weather gets colder and we spend more time indoors, and that's from Zach. Zach from Grace and Truth Farms. Thank you so much for sending that question in. And my answer is going to have to do with something that I call strewing. Now, in unschooling, there's this concept called strewing, which is basically you leave things out for your kids to find. And you don't necessarily attach any significance to them. They're just out. And you put these things out and you see what your kids latch onto. A perfect example of this is random books from the library. I don't know how how old your kids are, but just going to that children's book section and just pulling out random books, whether that's the fiction or the nonfiction section, whatever, just pulling out random books, putting them around your house, leaving them out. Your kids will grab them, look at them. Hey, do you want to read this? See what happens. Or you can also turn it into a game. Uh, you can take your kids to the library. Each of them picks an aisle. You say, close your eyes, walk down this aisle carefully, obviously, and pick a couple books. They're not going to know what they're picking. Whatever they pick, they have to bring home, and then you're going to read it, and you're going to learn something new. It might be the way that they discover something new that they wouldn't have picked out before. I really think the key to opening the world for your kids is giving them options, leaving things out. In episode 3178, I think it was where I talked about always having those musical instruments on the wall for the kids to grab whenever they wanted. Our kids always had access to a lot of different things. So other things they had, they always had art supplies, paint, glitter, 
all sorts of things, and we gave them the room to make a mess. We showed them, you know what, this is the drop cloth that you're going to put down when you're going to do your art on the basement floor. So, you know, they weren't going to wreck anything, but have at it. Have a great time. Those those materials were always there for them to mess around with. Uh, we always let them do their thing in the kitchen. We let them cook. We let them fail and figure out why it failed. Those are important lessons. They always had tools, hammers and nails and screwdrivers and power tools and all those things. When they were old enough, they always had tools and materials to build things with. Or here's something that broke. You know, we'd have family members who would have a computer that broke and they didn't want to deal with it anymore. And so they'd give it to my kids and we'd say, here, take this apart. Take it apart. See what's inside of it. And obviously they were supervised for a lot of this stuff, but you see what I'm saying? Just having things available for them to mess around with. Our kids could always use the sewing machine and we always had boxes and boxes of scrap fabric. And so they'd go down there and, and sew things together and make things and, and it was great. That's how they learned a lot of things. So strewing and making things just available for your kids, I think is, is the first way to really open the world for your kids. Another suggestion is to let your kids see you doing different things. Let them see what you're doing in your free time. What things are you interested in? I remember one day my dad, who was living with us at the time, pulled out a bag of old coins that he had. And I can't tell you how many times my kids looked through those coins with him, asking him questions about where they came from and what the engravings meant and what were they worth. That's a really big thing. That was just my dad deciding, I'm going to look through this bag of coins. And the boys happened to be around and they came over and went through the bag with him several times. What things have you always wanted to get into? Spend some time exploring those things and let your kids know that's what you're doing. Moms and dads explore things too. Moms and dads, they, they're continuing to have the world open to them, open the world together. Another suggestion is, of course, the internet. Now, our family was pretty loose with the internet. I did talk about that on an expert council episode. I believe it was 2904. And the internet can definitely open the world to your kids with information that you want them to have, and maybe some you don't, depending on their age and the beliefs within your household. But using the internet to open the world and have that information, that's an obvious answer. Could probably do a whole episode about that. Another suggestion is travel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to leave the country. It doesn't mean you have to leave the state. Although, if you have the means and the desire to do that, go for it. It also means if you live in the country and spend most of your time in the country, make sure you spend some time in the city. Showing your kids the city doesn't mean you have to like it. doesn't mean it has to be your favorite place in the world, but it's part of the world. Show it to your kids, right? Likewise, if you live in the city, spend some time in the country. Show your kids the country. Make friends with people who can share their life experiences with your kids. Be, be willing and able to travel in that way. Maybe make a list of three things that you haven't visited in your town and go visit them. If you live in a really little town, you might have to expand your search. But make a list of those things and then go do them. Another suggestion, be willing to be uncomfortable. Ask your kids to try something they don't want to do. This is another way to open the world to your kids. I remember when my kids were really little, I grabbed the community ed flyer and I put it in front of them and I said, pick something. I don't care what you pick, but you need to pick something from this catalog to do. I don't care if it's flag football. I don't care if it's cake decorating. I don't care what it is, but pick something. Let's learn something. Okay. So there's lots of different suggestions about basically just how to make the world a little bit bigger for your kids and just explore all the things that are out there. There are two things to be careful of, however. Number one, don't fall into the trap of being offended if your kids don't immediately latch onto and love that thing that, that you're showing them. 
Sometimes we make this harder because we want to fill our home with all the things our kids are going to find interesting, or we want to take them all the places that we just know they're going to love, right? You have no way of knowing what that's going to be. You have no way of knowing. So don't take it personally if your kids aren't into what you're into or what you're showing them. In fact, for some kids of a certain age, you might actually get them to pay more attention to what you're doing if you pretend you don't care that they're watching. You know what I'm saying? The other thing is don't fall into the trap of thinking you have to constantly be doing something. It's really important to open the world to your kids, but you don't have to constantly be doing something because sometimes the opening of the world happens in those moments that you're not showing them anything. It's those moments that they're quote unquote bored, right? Allow your kids to be bored. Allow your kids to have that time where it's not filled with stuff because that time that they're they're bored or whatever you want to call it, that's how they process what they've seen. So opening the world up to your kids really just means exploring options. It simply means understanding that there are a gazillion things out there, more than what any of us are doing at this specific moment. And it means being intentional about making different things available to your kids, whether that is letting them do what they want in the kitchen, safely, obviously, or having instruments hanging on your wall or letting them pull apart broken computers to see what's inside or having them keep rabbits or goats or chickens or have a cat or, or whatever it will be. You never know how they're going to put together all that stuff as they grow up and move into adulthood. You don't know how they're going to put that together. You don't know what they're going to pull out of their childhood and say, I got to do that. And it led to this. And that's going to be different for every single kid. So long story short, my answer to your question, give your kids options, options, options. So there you go. I hope that helps. Thank you so much for the question, Zach. I really appreciated that. Anybody who has more questions, you can send them to Jack. Send questions about homeschooling or parenting or family life. And Jack, thank you so much once again for the opportunity to talk to all your awesome listeners. Have a great day. My little addition on, on getting kids' world to be bigger is getting them involved in things, no matter what it is. Like, there's a lot of great things that Amy just talked about and things that, that they did. But I mean a different way. I mean making them find their own things, I think, is very valuable. So this was absolutely when I was still – I had my son in the public school system. I didn't know what I know now, or I think I would have, I would have, I would have done this back then. I would have figured out a way to do it. Um, But one of the things we said is that you will have some activity in your life beyond school and video games and hang out with your friends. I don't care what it is. And for him, it was, it was generally basketball. Well, that's fine. But it was like, if you don't pick something, we will pick something for you. And we're pretty much doing that with our grandkids now. Now, they're so inquisitive that it's not hard. There's so many things they want to do that it's not hard. And we let them have it run its cycle. My, my grandson, for a while, we had him in, in uh, individualized art classes. He did the thing. He liked the thing. He learned from the thing. It, 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 it impacted his life. It, it, it caused him to, um, to, to expand his views to it. But he also, like, I kind of, I'm kind of done with that. Okay, fine, pick something else. And, again, we haven't had to use any impetus, but I think the whole ultimatum of thou shall pick a thing or thou shalt have a thing picked for thee, is a great way to get your kids then going, well, wait a minute, I don't want a thing picked for me. You're teaching them freedom and independence, but you're also teaching them initiative. That's one of my, I, I, I have certain words uh, that they're about to start going down to the younger girl, 
But I've been using them for a couple years now and pushing them into my grandson, who's now 11, and I call them power words. They're powerful words. They're words that have a meaning and a significance. And a big one is initiative. Recently, he took some initiative. It, was, it wasn't even improperly directed. It was that he didn't know a thing I was trying to accomplish, and his initiative ended up in conflict with that. So when I said, okay, what I need you to do is correct this, I was very clear, this is not your fault, you weren't wrong, and you did good, you just didn't know. And it's okay you didn't check with me, because it wasn't a big, It wasn't like you know somebody's going to die if you did it or anything. Like, though it might have actually cost a bird its life, because we have a, it's a bobcat problem, and we're, we're, I haven't filled the water every day, and he moved it further out, and I'm like, we need it further in. But I was like, I'm praising you for your initiative. So one way we can teach initiative is that if thy do not take thy initiative, then someone will do the thing for thee that thee does not wish to occur, and you will be left without a choice, so I suggest you take initiative. So when it comes to expanding the world, teach them that thou shalt have thy world expanded. If thy wish is a choice, thy shall take it. Anyway, with that, let's move on. And don't say it that way. They won't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm just being fun. Uh, but yeah, just point up. hey, look, you can do an extra thing, or we can pick a thing for you to do. Next up, what about rabbits? And uh, in, in, in reducing your dependence on feed inputs from outside your property. Nick's going to talk about that. I find this really interesting because I was just thinking about this morning. I'm, I'm putting together some presentations for talks I have to do in the in the winter uh, with John Bush at a couple events in South Texas. And, um, you know, I, I had already worked into my thoughts that one thing that needs to be pointed out to a lot of people is probably the thing that you can do to produce high-density calories for your family on small property that is the most regenerative and most sustainable and least needs to lean on a feed store is rabbits. So with that in mind, Nick Ferguson and rabbits in reducing dependence on feed stores. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer on minimizing feed inputs for rabbits on a small suburban lot. Sorry, I've been gone for a little while. Um, I was in Arkansas for, uh, golly, I was gone for about 20, 21-ish days hunting and camping. It was my yearly retreat. I love it. I was completely off the grid, so I'm sorry. I am catching up on emails, and I have a, a couple open slots for consulting right after Nicole and I's Food Forest workshop where I'm teaching this weekend. So um, I'll have some more details on that. But let's jump into this question from Aaron. Uh, expert counsel question for Nick Ferguson. There are actually several questions tied up on this one. How do I best minimize inputs on feeding rabbits on a small suburban lot? How many rabbits could I expect to feed per tree or on a larger scale? How many trees would be needed per cattle unit? I think that's a detail I've never heard you mention. I could easily start a couple more along my fence line. Uh, I assume fodder trees. In order to make it through the winter dearth, I was considering siling not only tree hay, but also other yard weeds and prunings. I've got a lot of plants I know are suitable, but also a lot I'm unsure about. Is there a definitive source you would recommend for learning about toxicity, and can it be generalized to plant families, or what I need to know down to the species level? 
Does xylene have an effect on toxicity, either breaking down toxins or concentrating them? Um, I can just answer that one real quick. Uh, it, it has been shown to reduce nitrate poisoning effects with some things like pigweed, but mostly the other compounds will not be broken down very much, if at all, when uh, put through a fermentation. Uh, my kits will be tractored, but I doubt grass will be the majority of their diet due to space limitations. Thank you for everything you've contributed to this community. Aaron. Okay, thanks for the question. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have a hard, quantifiable answer for you because of the nature of what we're discussing. The problem with trying to answer the question of how many fodder trees for X animals is both the fodder trees and the, the animals and the environment that you're living in are dynamic systems. A fodder tree two years in the ground is drastically different in yield expectation compared to one that's been in the ground for 20 years. Similarly, a newly weaned kit is drastically different in feed needs than one that's six months old. The same thing applies to pastures. How many acres does a head of beef need? Well, it depends. Are you talking about Arizona non-irrigated desert or the Shenandoah Valley? on one of Joel Salatin's pastures. Is the beef a weaned heifer, calf, or a 3,000 pound bull? Grazer's eye is gonna come into play tremendously. The data I don't have quantified are things like soil fertility, rainfall, temperature, management of the trees or the animals. You know, the breed, I mean, there's so many things at play. I just, it's impossible to come up with a pat answer. So this is what I suggest. Get a bunch of trees growing, see how well they produce for you in your climate with your soils, and start feeding your animals. If you have too much leaf production, great. Make hay or silage or use uh, to use that stuff over the winter. Uh, if you can't even keep up with fresh usage needs, then you need to seriously increase the number of trees you have planted. If you don't have the space, well, then you have more animals than your land can support. I planted 800 trees last spring. I plan on putting another 1,200 or so trees this upcoming spring. I have no idea how many animals that will support. Very few the first year, more the second, and even more the third. I plan on eventually having at least two acres planted in fodder trees. So I say get to propagating those trees. You can always jam more in. If you end up shading out your grass too much, get rid of the trees. Thin them out. The hybrid poplar and willow are as simple to propagate as just you cut sticks off and stick them in the ground. I literally cut branches this August in the dead of summer to bring to a friend, had them wrapped in a trash bag with moist potting mix. I just stripped the leaves off of them, stuck the cuttings in there, didn't do anything else, but shoved it in the corner in the bed of my pickup truck. And three days later, when I handed them to the guy, they were already rooting. They had half-inch roots already sticking out of the sticks. So, uh, they're really easy to propagate. Back to the plant toxicity. For the most part, if you're talking about yard trimmings like grass and just yard weeds like plantain, dandelion, any of the stuff that's going to be growing in a yard, I would not stress about it at all. If you're talking about ornamentals, like you're cutting azaleas and stuff, then we're getting into something different. There's a lot of those ornamentals that are highly toxic to most 
herbivores. So what I do is I just search online for poisonous plants, rabbits. Just type that into a search box. There's tons of different resources. Most of them are just copied and pasted one to the other. So almost all of those lists are going to be very um, very similar. Uh, most people are just kind of copying what someone else has said without even verifying it. Um, forums on whatever type of animal that you're talking about normally are tremendous resources. So I'd look for um, forums and uh, ask those questions there or just search there. Um, I do have a link where you can find lots of lists of poisonous plants, and it is tinyurl.com forward slash 28DE, as in David Elder 7NZS. So that's 28DE 7NZS. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole bunch of lists there. The main question I can answer to wrap this up is how to reduce the feed inputs. Man, I would just tractor the rabbits with daily or twice daily movement. I grow fodder trees in the margins uh, and maybe in the main section of your yard. It'll help uh, with shade, so it'll help your grass grow a little bit better, and you'll get some extra trees in there. And I'd pollard them. So you cut them up high for higher yield per square foot while maintaining usable surface area on the ground. And I'd look into harvesting appropriate leaf matter from local forest areas. You probably have lots of things like willow and mulberry growing all over the place in your local green spaces. I really wish I could say, yeah, you just need two white mulberry trees per rabbit. Um, but, you know, this system is just far too dynamic and complex to simplify it like that. You've got to develop your own grazer's eye with regards to your location and the trees you're working with. With all that said, um, I did have a last-minute cancellation in my upcoming consulting tour after Nicole's and my food forest workshop um, at her place where I'm teaching this weekend. I've got Monday and Tuesday potentially available for a consult in the central to western Tennessee areas. On my way back home, I think that's the 31st and the 1st. Um, yeah, 31st and 1st. So if you want to jump on that time slot, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com, and I'll see if I can work you into the tour. Hope you are all having a great year. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Okay, so uh, good stuff from Nick. And, and again, I think that probably the most... Sustainable, regenerative, call it what you want. Um, means of producing meat for the average person where they can most divest themselves of outside food sources is rabbits. And I will tell you what Nick always says when he talks about this. But pellets are cheap and have a bunch of them anyway as a backup. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's just part of the equation is have feed for your animals and Remember my discussion with Paul yesterday, I said everything's a battery? Well, everything's a battery if it's used right. So feed that is storable long-term feed for livestock is a food battery for your livestock. And if you eat your livestock, it's a food battery for you too. And, and then take that and expand it. Fodder trees are food batteries. 
a good lawn is food batteries. And the publication that Nick mentioned about knowing if you have toxic things uh, in your, your forage, your lawn, etc., I have a link to that in the show notes right next to Nick's bullet point for today. So let's go into my topic today. I thought this was interesting. This one comes to me from Jesse in Texas, and he's not really that far from me. He's in a place called Breckenridge, and I thought I knew where that was, and I was pretty close. I'm like, I think that's west of Weatherford, and Weatherford's a bit west and south of me, and it turns out it is west of Weatherford, a little further than I thought. I thought it was near uh, Possum Kingdom Lake, and it's like, I don't remember the lake now. It's near the lake that's right after Possum Kingdom heading out west. And here's what he says. He says, how is it that new people arriving in my small Texas town buying new housing off cleared lots Uh, of torn-down old houses with no new jobs or business opening in our area. Details. I live in Breckenridge, a small town of less than 6,000. I've noticed a lot of old rundown houses being torn down, supposedly lots costing less than 20K each, with new houses being built and people living in them pretty much immediately after construction has been finished. As far as I can see, only new businesses are two new gas stations since I've been here for two years. How can a significant number of people be moving here With no new businesses, it pays significantly more than minimum wage. Thanks for all you do, Jesse, in Texas. This is a combination of things, Jesse. And I want to take this from a standpoint of specific to Breckenridge with some things that I've gleaned because it might help people with the more general aspect of what's going on and being careful in this situation. And I don't mean you being careful so much other than it, it is going to increase property values. right? And, and, and But it's a good time for property values to be increased because they're overall decreasing, so there's a cap on that. But long term, this can actually price a lot of locals out of a market if this keeps going. Uh, so you got to be careful with it. So here's what's going on. Basically, you know how I've been saying, get out, get out, get out? Well, people are doing it, even if they don't know that's – even if they're not doing it for the reasons we talk about. And they actually are the reasons, but maybe they would phrase it differently. But people all over the country have snapped to the idea that living in these flashpoint cities is bad, but they've also snapped to the point that it's not very affordable – to live in a lot of places anymore, even that are not bad. Like, I don't know that I would move to where I am today. It's not that I don't like the place. It's I don't know that I could get enough value for my money when I moved here. Let, let's just put some numbers on this again for people who haven't heard me talk about my property and the cost analysis before. I bought this place almost 10 years ago now for $205,000. For $205,000, I got two steel outbuildings, one about 800 square feet, one about 1,500 square feet. I got a 2,500-square-foot house. Yes, it needed a lot of work, but it's a 2,500-square-foot house, two-story. Uh, I got three acres of land, fully fenced and cross-fenced, and I got multiple other smaller outbuildings and, and more than that. But for $205,000, I think you could say that even back then, I got a hell of a deal. This house right now would sell for well over a half a million dollars. I don't think it's worth half a million dollars, and it's mine. I don't know that if I was going to move somewhere right now, I would come here and spend a half a million dollars to buy this house. I think for half a million dollars, I might be looking more out toward Breckenridge's, right? Now, let's talk about a few other things, Jesse, that I learned by taking a look at Google Maps and Realtor.com. Number one, if I want to buy a half acre, a little bit more, a little bit less, with a house on it that I'm just going to bulldoze right now, can I buy one in your area for around $20,000? The answer without looking very hard is absolutely yes. Now, would I want that particular, you know, what's around it? Maybe not, but it wasn't even hard to find. <clears throat> also found, like, vacant five-acre lots for $60,000. That sounded like a lot of money 20 years ago. Now, five-acre lot for sixty grand. 
doesn't sound like it. So you have a, an area that's kind of ripe for the picking for people doing what I'm suggesting except for one thing, and that is all the stuff I talk about being hard to do here is harder where you're at. You're more toward the desert side. You get less rain, more rock, not maybe than me personally, but certainly than my area, my general area. Um, but overall, it is a unique little place, and there's lots of unique little places like this. I'm not telling everybody ahead of Breckenridge. In that there is a lake there, there is some tourist activity there, some nice, there's amenities there. And when I say that, I mean there's a freaking Walmart right in town, right? And, and so you can get a Walmart, a Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. Uh, there's some restaurants and bars, like there's stuff. There's other people, and there's not too many people. And I think if you have complete meltdown uh, election night, for instance, let's say we have another election night meltdown, nobody there is going to even, you know, turn off the porch light and worry about it. So it's got that going for it. Now, it's also kind of right in the edge of the distance to major areas uh, as far as working for people who would commute maybe not every day but partially or maybe even every day. So the town of Weatherford that I mentioned is not that far from me, but it's far enough that it's a lot closer to you than if it wasn't. And so Weatherford is just west of Fort Worth. It's a fairly decent-sized town. There's certainly decent-paying jobs in Weatherford and in and around Weatherford. And if you wanted to do, let's say, higher-end shopping, there's lots of options for that. It is exactly from the center town of Breckenridge to the center of the town of Weatherford, a one-hour and 18-minute drive. For some people, they think a one-hour and 18-minute drive to work, oh, my God, in, in a lot of places here in Texas, it's not even a thing. And I'd rather drive I-80 for an hour and 18 minutes than I-30 for an hour and 18 minutes. I'd go a hell of a lot further on I-80, which is the road in between here and there, uh, than I would be on I-20 or I-30 in the middle of Fort Worth, Dallas Metroplex. So you've got that. It's it's only about an hour and a half to downtown Fort Worth. So that would include the whole greater Fort Worth area, lots of businesses and things down toward Benbrook and that. So for those of you that are like, I don't know any of these places, I just want you to think about what I've been advising. And now think about this place where he's seeing it happen. And it may be the case that it already happened, let's say you know, in like Brad and Caddo or whatever on the way out there, little bitty places, um, probably not, but like Mineral Wells. But see, Mineral Wells is so close that the property's elevated. When I look at this map right now, I see a town I'm not familiar with called Grafford, and I would say that might be right for this to happen. It's near Possum Kingdom Lake, which is kind of a recreational lake, and Breckenridge are about the two most prime targets for the type of thing you're describing, maybe Strawn, right? And, and so we're talking about all areas that are within one to one and a half hours of a fairly big place. Then going out the other, other way, there's some stuff out to your west like Abilene. So Abilene is not anything like Fort Worth as far as size and opportunity, but there's definitely jobs there. Abilene's only what, let me look real quick, I had it pulled up an hour. So you've got opportunity an hour in both directions. You've got some other stuff to the south. So you've got this little town with cheap property. 
And most of the people that live there probably work in and around it. So you have what we, ha we would call as an arbitrage option, uh, opportunity. If you can find a better paying job and you're willing to drive an hour, hour and ten minutes each way, then you can move to this place to save a ton of money. But what else is going on right now? A revolution in homework, you know, working from home. So then you got all these people that all of a sudden that now, as long as I can get Internet, I can live anywhere. And they're starting to pick and choose what's left. See, this happened. Like I said, it was going to happen. So now you got a lot of these people that are like, well, I can live anywhere. And they live, let's say, somewhere in or around an expensive area around here in Fort Worth like Plano or Richardson or Addison and somewhere like that, Irving or near downtown Dallas. And all of a sudden they make a deal with their employer. I don't have to come to work anymore. And they say, I wonder what I can get for my money. So they look up around like Denton, Decatur, and Bridgeport, and places like that, and they go, well, I can't get shit for my money. So they go down south to like Cleburne, Alvarado, Waxahachie, and you can replace this with towns around your city. And they go, shit, that already happened. Either the places are really run down, or it already got developed. Cleburne, Granberg, it's all expensive. Well, wait a minute. Where do I go? And all of a sudden they find this little place, some, and it doesn't take a lot of them finding Breckenridge for you to notice it. For everybody asking that question and looking, if 1% of them from a place like Dallas-Fort Worth with over 8 million people in it, 1% of the people relocating out of there choose to look in Breckenridge and a quarter percent of them buy. In the limited amount of property that's out there that's available, you notice it. And, that's, and this is happening over and over and over again all over the place. And what did I say was going to happen? This, these markets that are overinflated are going to, over time, collapse. And the housing prices are going to drop. But nobody's going to be able to afford to buy them because the interest rates went up. You have this stranded real estate problem. And a lot of people are just going to stay put with what they have. And that's going to be the one stabilizing impact on the property prices in, in these, these cities because why would I sell unless I can convince my family to move to some place where I can capitalize on this myself? If I sell my property here, I can't buy anything more than I have now. Because what am I going to do? Take the money and roll it into the next property and finance the, 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 the premium and pay what in an interest rate? Seven, seven and a half percent now? On a jumbo, because now all of a sudden people that were in, think about this too, people that were in easy to get financing for, FHA, VA, etc. loans, when they're upgrading, they're looking to going to these expensive rich people jumbo loans that don't have the same easy terms. So do I want that? No. So I mean they're going to move or stay put. So what happens is all these little towns, like your little town of Breckenridge, people start finding them. And what will happen is some ent enterprising entrepreneur will probably find this and go, look, that place over there I get for, I found one, $19,000, acre lot with a house on it. I'm, I, I'm not even looking at that house if I'm a developer. All I want to know is how much does it cost to have an excavator and a dump truck make it go away? And I'm building a new house. And I've already got a buyer lined up for it. I've got a list of buyers that I'm moving to this place that I'm marketing. I can be one little guy and I can change the face of a small town. Now, what kind of places are these? These are urban, rural fringe. 
These are quarter acre, half acre. I was looking at property. Easy to get an acre out there. Easy to get an acre. And every time one of these new houses sells, what do I have? Now, I have the ability to sell a house for a quarter million dollars that would be a half a million dollars in Fort Worth proper. And I have that person that's moving out that has a big chunk of change from dumping that property to some guy that moved here from Pennsylvania or New York to get the hell out of there. He's got a chunk of change. He has no problem getting financing. And every one that I sell helps with the comparables in the next mortgage. And I can keep bringing people in. And what begins to happen is all these little choice tidbit properties, which I've been telling you for two and a half years, start to dry up. Now, the other side of this, the risk. If you're doing this and you're not the guy that's like, well, shit, I'll just drive to Fort Worth every day. Because, again, I know some of you are like, an hour and a half, really? How you remember when I used to do this show in my car, for those who have been around that long? I had a 55-mile commute. It was routinely over an hour, and it was longer coming home than the mornings when I recorded going in because I came home at rush hour. And because I ran my own company, I would either go in a lot earlier or after rush hour. I show up whenever the hell I want. So it was. I drove more than an hour to work while living in Dallas-Fort Worth more than I didn't. It's a normal thing. So if you put me on the west side of the Metroplex and I can drive a country road for an hour versus being in traffic and cussing at people for it, I'll take it. So you got that. But the other thing you have are the remote workers and travel workers. So it's about two hours to Fort Worth, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport from, from where you're at. Now, if I am a, if I'm doing what I did for a long part of my life too, where I'm a traveling regional sales manager, all they care is I make my numbers and I do my shit and, and, and they'll leave me alone. Well, I can move out to a place like that. If I'm taking maybe two trips a month, where I'm gone for a week from home and leaving my family behind, I'd much rather leave my family out in Breckenridge in a nice new house with everything brand new than where I have to worry a lot more about burglary and robbery and stuff like I would right here. Like where I live, it doesn't happen because all our properties are big and fenced and dogs and you get bit and shot. But not that far away in the really richy, richy neighborhoods over there, they got porch pirates going from Amazon stealing and shit like that all the time. I see it on next door, just a few miles away. Because once you put that high density in, propensity for crime and petty theft and worse goes up. So now I can move out there. Now I'm traveling. I'm leaving my family in this nice little safe, brand new house. And yeah, I got to drive two hours to the airport, but I'm going to be gone for four or five days a trip. Do I care about the two-hour drive? I don't. I don't care at all. It's not a thing to me. And if I'm doing regional sales and I'm traveling, a couple trips a month might actually be down to Houston or something. I got two extra hours to drive on my road trip. I don't care. So I can hit that major airport. I can be anywhere. I can remote work otherwise. There's there's so many people in that, and then the other one is just straight remote work. You know, I'm a graphics designer, I'm a, a marketing analyst, whatever, and so much of that since COVID. Now, here's the thing you have to do if you are one of these people. You have to understand something. The question Jesse is asking is a really good question. How do these people afford these new houses here when the average person working here works at Walmart for 12 bucks an hour and they feel fortunate and there's only so many of those jobs? And if you work at the feed store or something, you're working three, four dollars over minimum wage. How do they? And the answer is they don't afford that house. 
That's why the property is primed for being bought like this. So if you go there and you have this sweetheart remote worker deal and you lose your job and, and you're you know an hour and a half out from any real opportunity and you have to go inside, you're not at the edge, you have to go in further three, four hours in, two, two and a half hours. Where's your commute distance? What are you willing to do? You can get stuck in this situation if you're the guy taking the opportunity. So the other group that's moving are people like me. Who, I'm not going to fire me. I can move to Breckenridge tomorrow as long as I can get DSL or cable modem or something like that so I can run my business. I don't care. And so it's a mix of all this. But what it really is, and it's what I've been warning y'all about, how long do you think those little choice places like that for this type of domestic relocation arbitrage how much longer do you think this is going to exist because these people that are moving in bulldozing a house and, and and put a brand new one in when do you think they plan on moving not for a while and if the real estate market crumbles around them as long as they can afford to stay there they're not going anywhere and longer and longer term the danger here is it's it's like a slower version of the airbnb effect Okay, And what I mean by that is Airbnb takes off in an area with a lot of tourist activity. All of a sudden, nobody that works there can afford to live there anymore because people are paying three times the house's worth because they're more worried about nightly rental than servicing a monthly mortgage. Because if my nightly rental on a place is 300 bucks and I have a half-million-dollar mortgage on it, I'll take that all the way to the bank. So this is the same type of effect as money moves in through remote work, remote entrepreneurship, Willingness to travel from there for specific types of employment, you're moving in a demographic that is economically far more, uh, for higher level demographic. But then you're in the middle of a time where we could go into a recession or depression. There's all kinds of ways that everybody can get injured in this. But the best, if you're going to be any one of these people, you want to be the person with multiple income streams that has some level of side hustle, specifically that is geographically independent, and you're one of the buyers. And that's why I've been saying get out, get out, get out for so long. So thank you for this question, Jesse. It's a really interesting one. And I never even thought to look at Breckenridge. But even though I didn't deeply shop it on Realtor, I did it for like five minutes getting ready for this segment. Immediately I went, that's a cherry. Again, that doesn't mean everybody here should go to Breckenridge. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of y'all might look it up and say, I don't want to live there. That's okay. I understand. You know, West Texas, and you're, you're not all the way to West Texas yet, but you're heading there. You're out toward Graham and all. You're in dry, rough territory. But it's a cool little town with a beautiful lake. And I can see why people would pick it as a way to get away from the mess. Away from the... Because no matter how big it gets, we're not going to use the word urban sprawl to describe Breckenridge, Texas. And so if you're looking to change your life this kind of way, I ain't saying Breckenridge, I'm saying find your Breckenridge. Find your place like this before the opportunity closes because every time one of these rundown-ass houses is either demolished, there's ones that are going to be demolished, and I looked at a bunch of them and went, that's not a, that's not a tear-down That's a gut and full remodel, but that's a that's a $89,000 house with an acre and a quarter that can be completely remodeled for, you know, uh 180 grand and now you're looking at you're under 300,000 
on a effectively a brand new home on an acre and a half. And some of y'all, your ears just opened up for the first time in the whole show today. You were what? Well, what? I'm telling you, it's there. But you got to start looking for the turd that can either be wiped away or there actually are turds you can polish. <laughs> anyway, with that, guys, hope you enjoy. And I'll tell you what, it's not easy to find. That's why when I saw what Jesse was at, I'm like, well, of course they are. Because these places are getting harder and harder to find. Harder and harder to find. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Thank you for tuning in today. Monday we will be back with a Just Jack show. I was asked yesterday to do one on business. Maybe, I don't know, possibly. We'll see how the weekend goes and what comes of it. I appreciate you guys being with me today. Please remember that uh, you can always support my show two big ways. Two big ways you can support me. One, do your online shopping beginning at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z. Tspaz.com. I do not have a new item of the day for you today, and I'm not sure if that Bluetooth speaker I've been talking about this week is still around. But if it is from Anchor, it's totally worth it. But no matter what you buy, start your shopping at tspaz.com, and you help us out. The other way, consider becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. Get all the good discounts and stuff like that. And you know, it's just hard to beat a program where you get more money back than you put into it. It's called being profitable and supporting the show you love. So consider doing that. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more. And one more plug for the fold card, guys. If you're going to spend money and spend it anyway, all you got to do is use one of my links. It's in the Daily Mail, today's show notes. It's at the, the Bitcoin breakout forward slash fold. Just use my link. You'll get 5,000 sats the day you sign up for the fold card. You can start earning money back on everything you buy that will take a prepaid debit card. Some things won't, but most things will. We pay everything with it. We've stacked almost 3 million sats You get 500 sats just to give it a shot. Check out the fold card. I'll never make a bunch of money off what they call the spin squad there, but it's it's less about me making money and more about you guys getting 5,000 sats to try it. Uh, getting the premium fold plus for free for the first month to see if it works out for you. Learning how it works and starting to build wealth in Bitcoin without even having to buy any Bitcoin. Again, we pay everything. When I say everything, we pay our health insurance. I pay the TSP server bill. I'm paying for all the catering shit for the workshop. If we have to pay for something, and I can use a Visa or debit, uh, a MasterCard or Visa for it, it gets paid for with the Fold card. It's the best way to do fiat when you got to do fiat with that. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>